What this global pandemic has done is held up a mirror, you know, to some of the darkest corners of our existence and the inequity and the lack of resources to many populations has become blatantly clear in ways that it has been for many of us. But we're seeing that a lot of people now are kind of waking up to seeing the systemic injustice and lack of distribution of resources. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back, folks, to the Mind Valley podcast. I'm so excited about our guest today. Because if you watch The Big Bang Theory, or if you were hooked on that beautiful 90s sitcom, Blossom, you've heard of this brilliant woman, Mayim Bialik. She is with me right now. And not only is she an incredible actress, but she is also a woman who's been nominated for four Emmy Awards. She has a PhD in neuroscience. She's written a variety of books on everything from advice for girls and boys, to a book on vegan recipes, to a book on attachment parenting. She is now the host of her new podcast, which I strongly recommend. It's called Mayim Bialik's Breakdown. When you're done with this podcast, I want you to go to YouTube, type in Mayim Bialik's Breakdown trailer. Check it out. It's so cool. It's a podcast on mental health. And her new series launched in January. It's called Call Me Cat, and you are going to love it. Season two is going to be starting in 2022. We'll be talking about that as well. So this is a woman of so many talents and a freaking remarkable brain. And we're going to be talking about everything from Elon Musk's theories of living in a simulation to the existence of aliens. We're going to be discussing some controversial topics like the corona vaccine, basically Everything that keeps my nerdy, geeky brain awake at night, wondering and pondering, I'm going to present to Mayim, and we're going to hear her views on it. After all, how often do I get to, to have a celebrity actress with a PhD on the Mind Valley podcast? So this is going to be a fun ride. Welcome, guys, and let's get started. Mayim, welcome to Mind Valley. Good morning. That was some introduction. Wasn't that brilliant? Yeah, I know. I'm really good at introductions. People tell me that. Maya, first tell us a little bit about what's going on in your life right now. You have so many projects. What are you most excited about at this point? Well, you mentioned my podcast. I'm actually in my podcast studio right now. Yeah, Maya and Bialik's Breakdown has really been something that my partner, Jonathan Cohen, and I started over quarantine, literally. I noticed my mental health was taking dips and dives, and so many people's mental health was taking dips and dives. And so we started this podcast and and we do have it on my YouTube channel and we also have it on Spotify and everywhere else that you get podcasts. And it's been really wonderful to talk to, yes, some celebrities and experts on mental health. And the idea is not like, let us fix your mental health. It's we're all struggling in different ways. And life is really about kind of constantly uncovering more and more. So that's been a main thrust of my life. And I can't ignore the fact that there was a, a very specific press release that I am one of the two new hosts of Jeopardy. Of Jeopardy. So yeah, I'm, I'm wow. not allowed to talk a ton about it yet, but what is true is that is just about the most amazing and most surreal thing. And if you want to talk about simulations, I feel like this whole thing is just a giant simulation to see if I can lose my mind. <laughs> so it's a remarkable simulation and you have the cheat codes, which is why you're doing so much. Okay, now, yes, 
I love that idea. Cheat codes to the simulation. Mime, one of the things that I wanted to share with the audience here is as I was researching you for this podcast, I discovered so many things about you that suddenly reminded me of childhood. So I was 12 years old when the movie Beaches came out. And in Beaches, you played a young vet Midler. And for some reason, as a 12-year-old kid in Malaysia, I was obsessed with that movie. I don't even know why, but when I researched, researched you and I saw the IMDb cover for Beaches, all of a sudden, the song Under the Boardwalk came to me. Yeah, and then yeah. the song Wind Beneath My Wings came to me. All of these songs with the lyrics popped up. And then I found out that you were in eight episodes of Webster. I was hooked on Webster. You played Frida on Webster, the nerdy right, girl. Yeah. And then before Big Bang Theory, you were on Blossom. And you were on MacGyver. MacGyver was my favorite television program of all time. I traveled everywhere with a Swiss army knife. I was like 13 or 14. I memorized, because I'm a geek, I memorized every episode of MacGyver in order. And I would recite them to myself on long car rides. And what was cool about you is you were on the 100th episode of MacGyver and Richard Dean Anderson took you as his date. Or you, you were probably like, what? 11, 12 at that uh, time? I, I think we must exactly be the same age because Beaches came out the week of my bat mitzvah. So I was almost 13. And yeah, I worked on MacGyver. Yeah, I was probably, I was 13 then. He took you, he took you on his, as his date for the 100th episode celebration party. Yeah, my parents were also there. I don't want to make I know, it sound I know, I know. That did sound yeah. awkward, right? Because um, a follow-up question could have been, what is it like dating 35-year-old <laughs> Richard Dean Anderson when no. you're 13? No, um, yeah, I mean, he had the mullet which was really sexy back then. very handsome, you know, just he was the epitome of 80s beauty, so. And finally, you were in Blossom. Blossom was such an incredible television sitcom. And then, of course, The Big Bang Theory. And here we are today. That's my career in a nutshell. You just did it. What I like best about you, uh, which I think is really cool, is that you gave up acting for 12 years to get a PhD. And I'm curious about that. What made you decide to go so deep into neuroscience? Well, let's see. There's a couple questions in there. When I went to college, I was two years out of high school. So Blossom ended when I was 19 and I was two years out of high school. So I basically had two years to watch all of my friends go to college. And I went to very um, aggressive academic schools where, you know, going to Ivy Leagues was the thing that you did. So, you know, I kind of had two years of, of angst of, you know, watching everybody have all these experiences in college and really feeling kind of out of sorts because I really just wanted to be in college. My grandparents are immigrants and I was raised that you go to college, like no matter what. So by the time I went, I had fallen in love with science as a teenager and originally wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to study psychiatry, not because I wanted to push pills on people, which is what a lot of people think psychiatry is, but because I wanted to have the medical knowledge of the mind and the brain. And the God's honest truth is I did not have the grades to get to medical school. There's a class called organic chemistry that basically determines if you can go to medical school. And I did not do so well. I mean, I studied all the time, but I ended up going to graduate school, which is not to say that people who go to graduate school are not as fantastic as people who go to medical school, but it's just a different, different way our brains work. So honestly, I wanted to know everything about the brain and nervous system. And I ended up studying obsessive compulsive disorder. And I worked in the field of mental retardation and um, really liked being in academia. It really agreed with my my sensibilities. I, I didn't miss being a public person. That's not something that's ever really attracted me about being an actor. I was never really taken with the money or the fame or any of that stuff. I 
you know, I'm the grandchild of immigrants and I'm the child of civil rights activists and public school teachers. So I wanted to be among people who want to study and learn and geek out about things. And I ended up meeting the person that I eventually married and had children with. We met as undergrads and we had our first son when I was in grad school and our second right after. So like I was on a completely different track of life and no one cared what I looked like or, you know, how much I weighed or didn't weigh, or if I had colored hair or lots of piercings, like I was living a very happy, you know, anonymous life, I guess, as much as you could. And then you went back into acting. Tell us about that. So I had, as I said, I had my first son and and then my second son, and I chose to leave academia to stay home with my kids. That's a a very difficult decision that is not for everyone, but for many parents and in particular women, it is a decision that we make. And so I was actually teaching neuroscience for about five years after getting my degree in the homeschool community here in LA. Um, I often taught with a baby strapped to me. I also tutored piano to make ends meet. You know, I done a lot of things to make ends meet. And the fact is I was running out of health insurance. And it's not, it's kind of like funny to say that, but it's also, it's true that, you know, we, we don't have the kind of healthcare in, in this country and in many places in the world. And I knew that if I could just even do one or two acting jobs, I could get health insurance for my, at that point, toddler and essentially newborn. So I had never seen the Big Bang Theory. Someone mentioned it to me once. I thought it was a game show because they're like, oh, you were mentioned on the Big Bang Theory. So I thought it was like a game show. And they were like, this person is a neuroscientist. So anyway, I just started auditioning while also still teaching and doing all the things I was doing. I was not planning on being on a sitcom. I did not know what the number one comedy in America was like, it's a crazy weird story. And, you know, it also changed my life. You know, I'm incredibly grateful and humbled that this is the path my life has led me on, but definitely, you know, like life is what happens while you're busy making other plans for sure. (laughs) I love how you you move from something so glamorous, being recognized on the streets as Blossom, into something so academic. What made you choose neuroscience of all the different possibilities? Of- oh, when I started in college, I went to UCLA, which is a very fine public university. I, I do believe in public school education and I'm very grateful for the opportunities I had at my public university. And um, because I didn't have such strong math and science from when I was in school, there was a program back then, which was called affirmative action, which is very controversial for many reasons. But what affirmative action did was it took people who came in with challenges in certain subjects and it gave them the opportunity to correct that so that they could then enter coursework. And especially in math and science, this was really important. So I couldn't take the classes that I thought sounded most interesting because I didn't have the GE requirements yet because my math and science weren't up to par. So I ended up taking, we called them remedial math and remedial chemistry. And, you know, there were many other wonderful students who are now most likely people's doctors and dentists who needed a little extra time to catch up. So while in those classes, there were only certain classes I could take if you didn't have the prereqs. So I took a class called Introduction to Psychobiology. And it was the only kind of sciencey thing I could take without having finished my chemistry and math requirements. And in this class, half the class was kind of psychology and Pavlovian conditioning. And it was very interesting. And I learned that I needed glasses because I had an astigmatism and <laughs> had to sit up close. But the second half of the class was taught by a professor whose name was Aaron Zidel, who actually passed away very recently. And he introduced us to the neuron and action potentials and the electrophysiology of the nervous system. And I literally had a moment where I was 
looking at the the board back then it was a board and overhead, you know, uh, slides because it was the year one. And I literally said to myself, that's the level of understanding of the universe that I want to have the level that tells me what happens with sodium ions, how they open channels and, and open receptors that lead to electrical impulses that lead down a structure that is called an axon that delivers information throughout the nervous system. That was the level of understanding I wanted to have of the world. And that electrical information is how we see, it's how we hear, it's how we feel, it's how we taste, it's how we speak. It's every single function. This is why neuroscientists believe we are the master science, which actually was a brought up on the Big Bang Theory. Sheldon and Amy do have a, a debate about exactly this thing. What's the best science? And I absolutely believe it is neuroscience. Neuroscience. And, and this also led to your interest in mental health, which is the subject of uh, your new podcast, mm-hmm. Mayim Bialik's Breakdown. Go check it out if you guys are interested in, in mental health. Now, I want to bring this to mental health. With COVID happening in the world today, so many people are experiencing challenges with their mental health. My country, Malaysia, is ranked right at the bottom of the Economist Normalcy Index. That means in Malaysia, I've had to leave my country. I've been living in Europe now for 13 months. I had to leave my apartment, leave my office. And I have 250 employees in Malaysia. Malaysia is the country most hit. And the mental health challenges that my parents, my family are going through are are crazy. And I know it's pretty bad in certain areas of the US itself. What would be your advice to people here who are stuck at home or are still in lockdown or are dealing with the political ramifications of the pandemic? I think that what what this global pandemic has done is held up a mirror, you know, to some of the darkest corners of our existence and the inequity and the lack of resources to many populations has become blatantly clear in ways that it has been for many of us. But we're seeing that a lot of people now are kind of waking up to seeing the systemic injustice and lack of distribution of resources. And mental health is one of those things that will suffer most and cost the longest lasting impact. The fact that we're even talking about mental health is so important because for most of our human existence, it hasn't been something that's been spoken about this way. So I think that what COVID did, what isolation has done, what the scrambling for vaccines, the the inability of many people to even access vaccine, it has shown us that we are all part of a global existence and our mental health is really the lens with which we see things and the way that we get to tackle all of the challenges we encounter, whether it's COVID or a sick relative or losing a job or whatever it is. This is the framework that we all get to see the world through. And for those of us who are genetically predisposed to having more challenges, or for those of us who have had situations of trauma or abuse or growing up in political turmoil, those people are going to be more vulnerable. And those are often the populations that are the least addressed. So I don't mean to be all doom and gloom. My hope is that by talking about it, we can get more resources to people. But the fact is, mental health is a human right. It's a human right to have someone hold space for you, to be heard. It's not foo-foo, something that Hollywood celebrities get. It's a human need to be held and understood and to have someone connect with you and help you with your experience. And there are many wonderful organizations that do work in these areas, but we need to do more is really kind of what I'm hoping that I can at least put out there. I think we're just starting to see the importance of mental health and mental health support. 
if you were president, if you were president of the United States, okay, and you could push for any law to help elevate the mental health of the population, what are some of the things you would suggest that the country does? It's a many pronged kind of solution. So it's hard to say, you know, here's the thing. What I know is that we need mental health to go where people are. You know, the notion of show up to this place, fill out 86,000 forms, pay this amount of money that most people don't have so that you can have access to this. That system is not working. We've tried that. It's not working. So what we need is obviously, I mean, again, I, this is, I'm not an economist. We need money to build systems so that we can train people and have people go where the need is. And while I understand not everyone can have free mental health care, we do need to have also therapists who are compensated so they are not surviving on people who can only pay a dollar an hour, five dollars an hour. So it's kind of like when people ask me, how do we fix the educational system? You know, it's like, well, we need to first incentivize people to go into the field of teaching and having them not compensated and given the proper benefits and support is not a great way to get people motivated. So it's a multi, you know, it's like, it's a multi-pronged problem, which needs a multi-pronged solution. But as president, I would tell people it is your human right to have mental health care and hopefully hire the people that can make that happen. I love what you just said. We just spoke about the societal issues of mental health, right? And one of the things you just said is therapists, being able to earn more, teachers being able to earn more. Sure. Uh, that's so important. Now let's talk about the individual. Based on everything you know as a neuroscientist, based on what you're learning from the so many incredible guests in your breakdown podcast, what would you say are a couple of tips that as individuals we can do in the midst of this chaotic world right now to deal with our mental health? Seeking help if you have not. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't even emphasize the importance of it. A lot of people think like, oh, it'll pass. My problems aren't big enough or no one can help me and I'm beyond help. Kind of both ends of that spectrum need attention. There are online resources that people can use to get support. There are also really wonderful resources, not even for therapy, but for information. Many people don't even know the difference between anxiety and depression or what it means or when you should get help. I like to refer people to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, NAMI.org is a great resource. I've, I've used their services for many, many years. There are many wonderful online resources that can at least start the education process because a lot of people just can't even name what's going on. Simple things also we're learning what mindfulness is. And again, this is not like, I'm not giving you Gwyneth Paltrow advice, a lot of respect for Gwyneth Paltrow, but the notion that we can calm our nervous system down by learning to stop and breathe is a very important scientific fact that really does with regular practice, change the lens with which you view the world. And we're talking, this could be three minutes, three times a day, learning to breathe in a way that doesn't just open your diaphragm, but gets all the way up into your shoulders. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google how to breathe right so that it gets all the way up into your body. That increases many, many important things in your brain and nervous system. I promise it's not out there. It's not, this is not hippie stuff. This is real science, simple things like that, building that into your day, even in small ways, learning to pause instead of yelling, instead of freaking out, all those things can be taught from 
all the wonderful resources that exist online for simple things like mindfulness. And yes, get sleep, have a routine, get off your phone. Phones are wonderful. Phones connect you to the world. You do not need to sleep with your phone. It's not good for you. It's not good for your brain. It's, I promise there are unconscious processes at work when your phone is in the room with you. Get off your phone. In the day when you're waiting in line for something, just look at the people around you. You don't need to go and scroll through your phone. I'm breaking the habit for me. My kids are breaking the habit for them. The phone is a wonderful thing, but it is not necessarily contributing to your mental wellness. I promise. And also don't drink and do drugs, like things in moderation. Those are like the, but you know, those are the, like, those are the mom things. Like don't numb yourself, get help instead. Talk to someone instead. Numbing out is a temporary short-term solution. Now I want to say the phone thing is yeah, so just say no to drugs. Sorry. <laughs> just say no to drugs. I want to say the phone thing is really, really, really true. I was just opening up my phone today and the state of the world just seems so miserable. We just had the biggest, hottest July on record. Afghanistan just fell to the Taliban. There are conspiracy theories about the COVID vaccine. And so I made a decision today that as much as I love reading the news, I'm actually going to take a news break. I, I can't do it. Yeah. And so I'm just going to take a news break. And I, and I did that for my mental health because I get affected by what I read by the news. Well, and I, and I think a lot of people don't realize that when you read that, even if you're not like talking about, it gets mm-hmm. into your system. Wow. I literally had heartburn that was coming. I mean, I stopped news and my heartburn went away. And I've done this experiment several times. Oh. It's agitating to read that if you are a person who's sensitive that way. Some people love it and they read it, but also it occupies your mind with things that are not about what your day is. Like, I wanted to speak to you today. I didn't want to hear about death and destruction as I was getting ready for this. And there's a time to know what's going on in the world, but it impacts your brain in ways that you sometimes cannot undo. And what's happening with the news cycle right now, and I'd love for you to talk about it, is that news needs you to get hooked to it. It thrives on your attention. Oh, yeah. It's designed to trigger, to grab your attention and hold it. So if you watch the right-leaning Fox News, right now it's all about blaming Biden for Afghanistan and getting making you angry with Biden. If you watch more left-oriented news outlets, it's blaming Trump and Bush. Right. But either way, it's it's dividing us. It's dividing us and triggering anger. So we get hooked. Mayim, nope. tell us as a neuroscientist what you observe about the news cycle and how we can maybe still be an informed society, but not let the news hook us and stress us out. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of comments, even when we were talking about, you know, COVID stuff and mental health. I don't mean to come down hard on on the capitalist system, but anytime you have a system that is geared towards eyeballs, Mm-hmm. and advertisers and money, you're going to have different motives. And so there are more and more places that are trying to present more a middle perspective. I mean, the middle's really fallen out, you know, of a lot of our culture. But, you know, for me, if I were also president, and this sounds like a very non-democratic thing to do, I would make all those news channels not allowed. And the only kind of news we're allowed is like Im- truly impartial news. Exactly. Because I think, and I think that's the problem. You know, I, I'm a bleeding heart liberal and I was, you know, raised by the children of immigrants who were civil rights activists. So like, it's no, it's no surprise that I'm a liberal. And also I tend to be socially conservative. I do have a very kind of like middle ground that I try and re- revolve in. And I made sure, you know, even with my kids who are or teenagers, 
you know, I didn't want them just like watching all of the Trump bashing, not because there were things that I think that they should, you know, elevate about certain things that Trump was doing and saying, but because it's not healthy for us to view the world through that kind of hostile lens. Mm. So, and, and that's a real thing. That's a thing in terms of how your brain interprets information. And yes, when you have the tone of the far right and the far left, we'll just call it that, it's not healthy. It's not good. It does stimulate this kind of like weird dopamine loop. It stimulates a lot of aggression. And that stuff is circular because we're animals. You know, we get a fight, we get into a fight. And mostly there's a lot of we need to agree to disagree when it comes to a lot of this stuff because we're not going to fix it between us. Absolutely. I want to give a couple of tips here too to people who are watching, just some apps which you might find useful. So on news, there is a new app you can get called Smart News. Well, it's relatively new and they claim to be very impartial. So you hear both sides of the story. So they're not about triggering you. They're not about triggering you and poking a hole, Trump is evil, Trump is evil, Trump is evil. You kind of see both sides of the story. And when you see both sides of the story, news doesn't hook you as much and it doesn't depress you as much because you understand that it's a Everything isn't black and white, right? They are, they are nuances. Nuance. So that's, that's a word that a lot of people, I think, don't right. even... They, we've lost nuance. We've lost subtle, subtlety. We've also lost our sense of humor in many cases, which is really unfortunate for us comedians. <laughs> yes. So you get informed, but you don't get triggered. And then in terms of mindfulness, uh, have a surprise for all of you guys. Officially today, Mind Valley launched free meditation, a free meditation of the day on the Mind Valley app. So if you download the Mind Valley app, you that's create great. today. Every single day, we have a free meditation for you. What's different from other meditation apps is our meditations are from world-class teachers. So today's meditation is from the Buddhist monk, Gelong Thubten, the best-selling British author and Buddhist monk who uh, trained the cast of Dr. Strange on Eastern philosophy. And it's a meditation on compassion. So you can meditate for free every day right now on the Mind Valley app. You just have to create an account. You don't have to enroll or anything. It's just one meditation a day. If you are a member, you get like access to 500 meditations and thousands of, of pieces of content and so on. But anybody can now afford that. So let's go on to the next topic, Maya. The next thing is, I want to play a little game with you. I want to ask you the geeky questions, the, the questions that keep, okay. keep geeks awake at night. So firstly, Elon Musk said there's an extremely high probability that we are living in a simulation. Now you study the brain. You're a neuroscientist with a PhD but you are also, you've also expressed in interviews that you have a religious identity, you're Jewish. How do you reconcile neuroscience and religion? Are we living in a simulation created by an advanced being, an advanced alien being? Are we a product of a higher power? What is your worldview? Wow. I mean, that, that's a lot of questions in one. I think it's funny because my 13-year-old, he sometimes will like wake me up. Mama, mama, is this a simulation? <laughs> very, very into the simulation idea to completely bring it down to kind of like brass tacks. You know, when I first saw the matrix a million years ago, like it rocked my brain and it rocked my world because it felt, it felt so accurate to a lot of the things that I had felt, especially as a teenager and, and honestly still continue to feel as a, a large teenager. You know, I still kind of feel like I'm the same person in there. It just, you know, older on the outside. You know, I, I don't know that my belief, a power in the universe and, and all of the forces of nature, which I choose to call God, I don't know if that's in opposition with the notion of a simulation. I also don't know that I would put a necessarily a, a negative or positive spin on the idea of a simulation because 
my concept of God and the universe is that it's not good or bad. It just is. Meaning if I were to ask you, is gravity good or bad? Well, it's bad when people fall down and hurt themselves, right? But it's good when we don't fly off the planet. So that's kind of how I think of of my concept of God. God just is. It's all those forces of nature. You know, the tides need to do what they do. The sun comes up every day. I'm pretty sure. I like to point out to people, even if you don't believe in God or have a religious practice, if you believe when you go to sleep that the sun will likely come up in the morning, we have the same faith. We just choose to honor it differently. And there's not judgment around that. You know, I may say a prayer about it. I may feel a certain feeling, but our faith is, is really the same. So I don't know that I can answer either for you or your audience or my 13 year old, if we're living in a simulation, what I know is that, you know, I have a religious practice and I have a a cultural practice that is very, very focused on the here and now we're very much about, you know, what do you eat? Is there mindfulness to that? How do you present yourself? How do you conduct yourself? How do you interact with other human beings? Um, and, And that's not to say that that's the only or right way to do it. You know, my belief is that there is oneness in the universe. And every culture and every religious tradition is trying to make sense of it, just like indigenous people have made sense of it for thousands and thousands of years. These are all different ways that cultures insert their humanness on something divine. And in my religious tradition, God is unknowable. God is absolutely unknowable. There's aspects you can know, there's a relationship you can have, but the the extent of kind of, you know, our understanding of a larger journey of the universe. That's not for us to know, but we do get to know how to love each other, how to be kind to other people, how to treat the world and the earth with respect. So those are kind of the principles, I guess, that I live by. So probably simulation. Don't know if it changes how the rest of this interview goes, but we'll see. Beautiful. I like that. Now, the next question is this. As a neuroscientist, you understand how complex the human brain is and how it evolved, but you probably have also thought about where this evolution is going to go, like a million years from now, what would we look like as a species? And that leads to another question. If the universe is, what, 15 billion years old, are there other species ridiculously ahead of us? And are they visiting us right now? Do you believe so, in aliens? And where? Do- <laughs> Let's just boil it down to does Mayambiolic believe in aliens? I, I, um, I had to word it. I had to word it in a more elegant way. So it doesn't sound like I'm interviewing you for the National Enquirer. No, I appreciate it. And I think it's very important. And this is also not to, you know, not to talk about my podcast, but this is a lot of what I do on my podcast is we take we take concepts and try and find the science and the humanity under them. Meaning like, you know, even sometimes people are like, oh, what's acupuncture? And why do you use essential oils? And why do you have crystals on your desk? And it's like, well, I'm happy to explain it. So here's the thing with aliens. It is completely possible that there are beings and and probably pretty likely that there are beings, of course, out there besides us in terms of, you know, development. Yeah, I'd be happy to say that it's likely that there are beings that are ahead of us. And also I'm willing to grant, and again, my 13 year old loves to talk about this. I'm also willing to grant that we don't have access to that kind of information or perception, meaning there may be dimensions that other beings operate on that we do not have access to. And I will just say that I love the movie Arrival. That's the Amy Adams, is that her name? You know, the redhead? Yeah. And like the things with the suction cups and the language, like that's one of my favorite movies to think about 
our perception and how far we may be away from even understanding. And not to get religious, but in biblical times and in many ancient traditions, God spoke to people all the time, right? And the notion is like, God, the God doesn't speak to people. And I just said this to my almost 16 year old. I said, what if God is speaking and we've lost the way to listen? And that's kind of how I feel about this notion of other beings. They may be communicating with us and we don't know how to listen or we don't have the tools or the consciousness yet to listen with. And that's like super, that's higher level. It's very, you know, I'm not trying to sound esoteric. I love the idea of wonder. I love the idea of maybe and of magic. Yes, I'm a scientist and I do want proof of things. But the fact is, I'm open to the possibility that there's more evolution than this. And if you think about sort of the overlap between Neanderthalensis and Australopithecus and all of the, the, the homos that came before us, meaning we're homo sapiens sapiens, there is overlap between different processes of evolution. But I think what's important is, is not to think, you know, my older son was like, well, who's the most evolved being? Who's the smartest being on the planet? And I said, I cannot answer that. It depends what kind of wisdom you want to talk about. You know, there are things that dogs can do that I cannot. The dogs are much smarter than me when it comes to smell, when it comes to loyalty. Kidding. That was a joke. But anyway, I think it's very hard and a very human and very capitalist desire to make a class system around it, you know? And I like to think of us more on some sort of spectrum and continuum that is not linear. And I think that's, again, what the movie Arrival really, you know, helped. That's a movie recommendation I, I'd love for you guys to check out. Now, let's touch on that topic. What do you believe about God? Is God in our brain? Is God outside us? Is God the morphogenetic field? What exactly is God to you? The concept that I was raised with, which still resonates with me as an adult, is that God is everywhere and everything. God is every molecule, every person, every breath. It's all around us, just like the forces of science are all around us, you know, and, and that's sort of a, a later interpretation, you know, traditional Orthodox Judaism is not like it's about science, but there are many scientists who are Orthodox Jews and have been for thousands of years. Some of our most famous rabbis were also doctors historically and consultants to sultans. And we have a, a rich medical and scientific history, but that really is sort of my understanding of God. You know, I don't like to say like God is a feeling, but my younger son actually has taught me a lot about the feelings of safety and security and wonder that we feel is divine. So in that sense, really everything does have the capacity to be touched by divinity in some way. Do I think that religion is God? No. Do I think that people are a representation of exactly what God wants? No, there's terrible things that happen. There are horrible people. There are horrendous things done in the name of God and religion, but do not confuse God with the people who follow God. Those are two different things. I love that answer. And man, I don't know if you're reading the chat, but there's so much love for you right now in the chat. I, it's, ve it's very, very nice. I keep waiting for like the one super mean comment, but that's just me. <laughs> oh, no, no. Like, and so what if man's words resonated with you? Type a message in the chat. Show her some love. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Um, so Nicole is saying, this is absolutely my favorite type of conversation. Someone wants to be my neighbor. I thought that was sweet. <laughs> Someone said, I want to be your neighbor. Crystal said, love your perspective and personality, bright, educated, and so well grounded. So the next question is this. Tell us about moments when you had a spiritual experience. Now, you might talk about altered state. You might talk about intuition. You might talk about coincidences. I, I don't know what it is for you, but tell us about spiritual experiences that affected you. 
I've never been asked this. This is a really beautiful, profound thing to think about. The first that comes to mind was in the Baha'i temple in uh, Haifa, that's in the north of Israel. So the Baha'i faith, as many of you hopefully know, is a beautiful, I don't want to say non-denominational, but kind of post-denominational religion. We actually just had uh, Rain Wilson was on uh, my podcast today. We just launched that today and he's of the Baha'i faith. And so we actually talked a lot about it, but the Baha'i kind of headquarters are in the north of Israel and they have these unbelievable hanging gardens. And the Baha'i faith believes that all prophets were true prophets. So their prayer space that they have that I went to has no icons, meaning there are no images. There's no picture of, of Jesus or of Moses or of Muhammad. You know, it's a completely neutral, beautiful space. There's some floral decorations and a really profoundly beautiful smell. And I had a feeling of something very much not describable. It was a very, very interesting. I don't want to say it was like, I felt happy. Like it wasn't happiness. It's a feeling of, of wholeness and presence and unity that was very, very specific. Giving birth is a spiritual experience. My second was born at home in under three hours. I was alone until pushing. And I'm, I'm talking about this to normalize birth and natural birth. It was an incredibly profound experience. And I literally had a, a feeling of complete connection, not with the universe, but with myself that I had never had before. You know, being in love in a very specific way is a very, very divine, mystical experience. And I'm grateful to get to experience that. And, you know, those are some kind of outstanding ones. You know, I am a person who believes in ritual. I am a person who, who prays and Yom Kippur is the day that traditional Jews fast. We don't eat or drink for 25 hours and we spend the day in prayer and meditation. And those are some of my most favorite moments of the year, because when you're in a, and again, you're not like out working or running when you're not eating or drinking, you, you really do need to conserve a lot of energy, but it allows you to really go deep inside and you do start to have some really, really complicated thoughts and feelings. And you realize why prophets who uh, fasted probably (laughs) wrote some pretty awesome, dopey, trippy poems, but you really do. You get an experience of, wow, look what's inside of me when I don't spend my whole day consuming. Look what's left when you take away the things that you think are what make you. So those are some of my most profound experiences in particular, but Also, I come from a religious tradition where the sun coming up every morning is a miracle to celebrate. And so I really do try and focus on finding um, divinity and and spiritual awakeness throughout my day. It's why traditional Jews pray pretty much all the time. There's a prayer for the bathroom. There's a prayer for before food. There's a prayer for after food. That's one of the things that our tradition tries to instill so that you're kind of constantly in a state of, you know, religious ecstasy, but also the rest of the day is sometimes messy and, you know, that's also life. That's beautiful. Now that leads me to the leading question from our audience. So for those of you who are new to the Mind Valley podcast, this is recorded in front of a live audience. They are 512 people live with us. And uh, I love doing this because sometimes you guys ask better questions than I do. And so the number one loaded question is by Kristen Von Tilburg, whom I just made live. And Kristen, I, I want you to ask your question as you typed it out. And the reason I think this question is appropriate is because, Mayim, you were just talking about your faith and prayer. And Kristen's question is extremely related to that. Kristen, go ahead. Ask Mayim your question. Hi, so glad Hi. to be with you all today. Uh, my question is, what is your favorite manifestation or creation technique? 
Can you say more about manifestation and creation techniques? Yeah, you've created so many amazing opportunities in your life, and uh, Vision and Mind Valley has been supporting me and understanding how to put myself in a state to draw opportunities to me. I wonder if you have anything like that. I'll translate that. What Kristen is asking is, what are the practices you do to attract abundance, luck in your life? I feel so honored to be asked this because I feel like I could learn more from you, Kristen, I'm sure. There are things that I do. I'm not going to say that there are not. And I've been very open about being part of Overeaters Anonymous, being a compulsive overeater and struggling with restricting and anorexia and also compulsive overeating. So there is a lot of prayer and meditation surrounding the 12-step programs, which I know may not be for everyone, but I've learned a lot from those programs as an adult that's really helped me mature a lot to try and understand my place better. But what I will say is one of the most important things that I have done is to surround myself with people who believe in me more than I believe in myself. I struggle a lot with believing in myself. I do not have great confidence. I really don't. And, you know, some people say it's part of my charm, but mostly it can feel like an impediment. And I have crystals, I do meditation, I go to therapy, I cannot live my life without the support of someone helping me through it. But I've been blessed to surround myself with creative people who have helped me. My current partner is the person that I do my podcast with, and I literally wouldn't do it without him. I would sit in the corner and cry. And, you know, so I've had that opportunity. My YouTube channel was started by a very close friend of mine. His name is Emmanuel Shalev. He works for Aleph Beta, which is um, a a Jewish online, um, actually it's for all faiths, video series about education. And he was the one who started my YouTube channel because I said, nobody wants to hear from me. I don't want to do this. So I, I know that's kind of a strange, a strange response. Usually when I try and do like meditations on abundance, it just makes me cry and I feel bad. So I have a lot of problem accepting where I am. And I'm very grateful to those who have walked with me, you know, through this path. So I, I have inspirational quotes. I have things that I definitely look to, but you know, for me, shutting out pop culture has been very helpful because it usually makes me feel bad and sad, you know, limiting my time comparing and despairing, which is really where I tend to go and learning to trust my intuition more. I've been told by many people that I have great intuition and I almost always push it aside. So Mm -hmm. literally even just yesterday, I had a conversation where I said to someone, my intuition was right about this and I'm not going to push it aside anymore. So that notion of like trusting my gut, it's something I'm really trying to learn, but you know, I'm 45 and I'm still learning. I still feel like that 15 year old kid who's like, where do I belong? So it's a process. I'm really, really appreciate your question, but really hope I can turn it around to you one day. Well, thank I just want to so thank much. you for the way that you've used your influence and your position in, in the public eye to bring forth this compassionate, caring. Oh, thank you. And- I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your beautiful question, Kristen. And we're going to be bringing up uh, Rita shortly. So Rita SV, get ready for your question, okay? Have your webcam turned on. I love how you answered that. I love that you are so open to your religious practices, to meditation, to even crystals. I just started believing in crystals like a year ago. I, I tell well, you, you, you don't have to believe in them. They exist. Like we weren't waiting for you to believe in them. <laughs> and um, 
And one of the things I wanted to ask you, hi, Rita, nice to see you. So Rita's going to ask a question. I'm actually going to ask Rita, I'm going to bring you up, Rita, to ask your question now, and then I'm going to get to the the closing question. So Rita, go ahead. Hi, hi, Mayim. What are the habits, your daily habits and attitudes that have helped you be such a successful actress, writer, mother, scientist? Uh, how, How have you managed to combine them all? Thank you, Rita. I'm just going to repeat it because Rita's mic uh, wasn't extremely clear. Rita, thank you for such a beautifully worded question. It was our second highest rated question. And this is it. What have been the daily habits and attitudes that have helped you be a successful actress, scientist, mother, writer? How have you managed to combine it all? Rita, thank you for your question. It made me very emotional because, you know, the answer is, is not what I would want to hear. It's not what I would want to hear. Because the answer is I wake up every day and I, I thank the universe that I got up, that my soul was returned to me. And then I put my feet on the ground and I just put one foot in front of the other. And every day there's different challenges and some of them are harder than others. I'm a mom and it feels sometimes impossible to like be here. And also I got to go feed my kids right after, you know? I just put one foot in front of the other. I try and behave with kindness. I make prompt amends when I wrong people. I do. I take, I take inventory of myself, you know, hourly, if not minutely. And I really just do my best. I live by the principles that many people familiar with 12 step programs live by. You know, I say what I mean. I mean what I say. I don't say it mean. I try and keep it simple. And when I'm scared, I try and pause. Pausing is a tool that I really didn't learn until my thirties. And I take care of my kids. I try and take care of my needs. I make sure I'm not hungry, angry, lonely, or tired as much as possible. That's halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And then I thank God for the day being over. But, you know, most days I fall down nine times and I get up 10. That's it. I don't have more than that. That's just my life. And I hope that's helpful, but that's just me. So beautiful. Thank you, Rita, for the question. And I love the quote. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. And I don't say it mean. Rita, thank you for your question. And I am what a beautiful soul you are. Like I just being in your presence is so uplifting. For the people here who are listening, one of the things I really want to ask you to do, because I think this is going to be something that is just going to be so powerful in this time right now, is to go and sign up for Mayim's podcast. It's a free podcast. You can check it out on YouTube. There's a beautiful trailer on YouTube. It's called Mayim Bialik's Breakdown. Search for it. You'll find the trailer. And in the trailer, Mayim, you mentioned how that there's this part where you mentioned that you're just going to be real and authentic. (laughs) And when I saw that trailer, I'm like, yeah, everybody says that. But now (laughs) when I actually see you here on this podcast, interacting with our listeners, you are so real and authentic. And it's the only way I know how to be. I'm not that good of an actress. (laughs) I know it. And I'm looking at the comments and people are saying, wow, this is, you are such a lovely soul. They are subscribing to your podcast. And a word that's coming up in the chat is authentic, real, authentic, real. You literally, you embody that. So I love that. Now there's something else which I'm really excited about. And that is your new TV series, Call Me Cat. It launched, I believe, Jan 3rd this year. It's going to be renewed for a second season. Yes. And, And the character you play there, 
is again such a positive character. Tell us about Call Me Cat because I'm really excited to get hooked on this. And now that the people here have listened to you, I think they're going to really enjoy the series. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Call Me Cat is based on a, a British series called Miranda, which is based on Miranda Hart, a very interesting, quirky comedian. And we did an American version because. <laughs> We mainly think British people laugh at us, not with us. So we did an American version. And what it is, is it's a Fox series. So Fox is a network. And it's a show about a 39-year-old woman who doesn't have it all and is happy anyway. Her particular story is that she um, owns a cat cafe. That's right. It's a cafe where cats come in and people come in and the cats are up for adoption. And she is the closest character I've played to me. She's very goofy. She's very klutzy. She's got a, a childlike wonder to her, which I think is something we don't get to see a lot of, especially with women on television. She wears sneakers with dresses. She kind of doesn't have a great fashion sense, but she's got her own fashion sense. You know, I like to point out with sitcoms, like we're not curing cancer. We're we're not a philosophy show. We're not a podcast. We are trying to entertain people in a really, really difficult time in our history. We made our first season during COVID. We were shut down at least once, actually twice because of of COVID scares. We made a show that's supposed to be done in front of a live audience with no audience and with no writers on set. We did the best that we could. Um, our second season is going to be really, really awesome. And, you know, we're, we're trying to entertain you. We want, we want people to have something that makes them smile, that makes them laugh. Our cast waves at the end of every episode, which is something the Miranda British show did, kind of breaking that fourth wall happens. And it's light. It's fun. It's, again, about a woman who's not perfect. She's not a size two, but she can still have a life and um, enjoy herself. And I I think that resonates with a lot of women, men, and everyone, hopefully. I love it. I noticed something about you. I believe every human being has a frequency, has an essence that they put out there. I believe it comes from the soul. And your frequency is so healing. Like, so it's so healing. And I'm beginning to see the dots. I'm beginning to see why you are you. It's like when I am in your presence, and I think the the audience here, and I know you're giving me that, what is he going to say? <laughs> Look, but I just feel so happy to be alive. And when I watch- I'm happy you're alive, so that's good. <laughs> when I watched the trailer for Call Me Cat, I got so excited about the show, not just the humor, but the feeling I knew that show was going to give me. It's just so positive and you radiate that. So I'm so happy to have yeah. you. Those of you in the live audience, I want you to just- Fill the chat with love right now. Okay? I have new best friends. <laughs> you have so many best friends right now. And I know you got to go to your kids. I know you got to cook. <laughs> I do. I'm let you go, but the chat is going to get filled with love. Thank you for joining us, Maya Bialik. And for those of you who want to continue being connected to Maya and being part of her healing energy, all you got to do is check out Call Me Cat, the TV show on Fox. And most of all, subscribe to her beautiful new podcast on mental health. Breakdown with Mayim Bialik. Thank you, guys, and thank you, Mayim. Thank you so much. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? 
your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.